Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Miracle or Magic? The Problematic Status of Christian Amulets by Dr. John L. Crow. Introduction. In 1171 CE, Hugh de Puiset, Bishop of Durham, hired an engineer named Richard repair and enlarge Norm Castle in Northumberland. Richard, a respected local landowner, wore a silk sack from his neck that contained a number of small parchment amulets, or phylacteries, which contained the names of God, and also extracts from the Bible, including portions of the Gospels. He wore these amulets as a means to resist evil and win divine protection. A Benedictine monk from Durham learned of Richard's sack, and decided to offer him an amulet of superior power, a relic from St. Cuthbert. The monk gave Richard a piece of the burial shroud in which the saint was wrapped. The relic was believed to bring about miracles and resist fire. Richard accordingly thanked the monk and added the relic to his sack. Note the story of Richard the engineer is found in Reginald of Durham's Lebelis, of 129 miracle stories about St. Cuthbert. The story is summarized in Skemmer Binding Words. This brief story illustrates a common occurrence within the history of the Christian Church, the use of amulets as a conduit of supernatural power. Yet these amulets were problematic. The use of amulets was condemned outright by not only Augustine, but numerous ecumenical councils as well. They claimed that the use of amulets evoked the power of demons and created implicit or explicit pacts. Nevertheless, during the Middle Ages, only members of the clergy were educated enough to make the amulets and thus were the primary supplier of them to their parishioners, although there were non-clergy who sold them too. The church fathers and intellectuals made the distinction between the miracle of the relics and sacred words of the Bible, verba sacra, versus condemned amulets labeled as superstitious magic, a term used to delegitimize their use and imply demonic association. But for the illiterate and uneducated, the distinctions between magic and amulets and church-approved amulets were hardly discernible. Moreover, enforcement of amulet prohibition was uneven and intermittent. 
entering the 15th and 16th centuries, amulet creation became a shared duty between the local clergy and common cunning folk, common men and women who supplied magical services, including amulets, for money. This created a very tenuous status for these amulets. In this essay, I will briefly explore the complex history of various types of amulets, primarily focusing on textual amulets as they manifested in the Middle Ages and continued to be used in the Renaissance, and in common creation and usage by the various classes of Europeans. I will suggest that the problematic status of amulets is a symptom of a larger problem of division between the theory and the theology of the church elite and the ignorance of the general membership. Amulets and similar objects were on the edge of the negotiations made by the church to control vast territories and groups of people from both external pagan influences and also the internal influences of demons, which were seen as constantly battling for the souls of every man. Yet the populace was not equipped to understand the differences. Moreover, the church's use of polemic discursive language added complications to this negotiation. This same complication is found in modern scholarship about magic, and I will briefly touch on these issues at the end of this essay. However, before examining the various states of acceptance of amulets, it is useful to define the term. The word amulet is a derivative of the Latin amuletum, the etymology of which dates back to the Arabic word hamlet, which meant an object worn on the body or around the neck as a protective agent against a number of afflictions. In the Middle Ages, a significant number of amulets were created on parchment and contained some kind of writing and or symbols. The languages used were Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and various vernaculars. Regardless of the language, they were all seen as a means by which power could be attained and negative effects averted. Origins and Uses of Amulets Although I will be examining Christian amulets, amulet use was not a Christian creation. The origins of amulets date back millennia to Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and Jewish cultures. These amulets were sewn into clothing worn around the neck in sacks, kept in bags, or placed in hidden locations. There were many reasons to use amulets, however, the most common were as protection from malevolent forces and for healing. Other reasons could be to attract the love or attention of another, to retrieve or find lost or stolen objects, protect one's property or live livestock from witchcraft and demons, or to gain knowledge or understanding. In one example, to treat a fever, a Roman physician advised a patient to wear an amulet made of papyrus with the word abracadabra arranged in an inverted triangle that diminished with each line ending on the letter A. Note Schemer, Binding Words, page 25, also Cornelius Agrippa, Three Books of Occult Philosophy, 476. He notes the use of the word abracadabra and also shows the diminishing triangle, quote, also, Serenus Simonicus delivereth amongst the precepts of physic that if the name Abracadabra be written, as is here expressed, viz. diminishing letter after letter backward from the last to the first, it will cure a hemitritian fever or any other. There are cases of other medical amulets, including a Syriac amulet made on leather dating from late antiquity, which appears to both heal and expel demons from a woman. In part, it reads, Appointed 
is this amulet for the healing of this girl upon whom this amulet is hung? O mighty and awful God, Adonai Sabaoti, the Lord command the holy angels that they should annul from this girl upon whom this amulet is hung. The gods may remove and extract from this girl upon whom this amulet is hung all the demons and devils and sticking and whispering spirits and Sheshnasar, the educator, and spells, pebble spirits, and liliths. Fascinating quote. It's from Neve, Syriac Amulet, page 36. Judaism also had amulets. One kind, called Tephilim, are narrow parchment strips with the names of God and excerpts from Exodus 13, 1-16, and Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, 11, 13-21. Housed in leather boxes, these amulets were attached to the forehead and the left arm. They served as a memorial function, as it states in Deuteronomy 11.18. Therefore shall ye lay upon these my words in your heart and in your soul, and ye shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. Worn on Sabbath and while praying, tefillin are still used today by Orthodox Jews. In addition to tefillin, Jews also had amulets for medical purposes called kemiah. Because the possibility of saving a life was so important, rules and limitations were created in the Halakha, allowing the use of kemia, regardless of other laws and commandments to the contrary. These rules allowed a doctor to be the final arbiter for their use, as opposed to the rabbi. It's fascinating. For an amulet to be recognized as valid, the same amulet formula had to cure a disease in three separate people, or the same disease three separate times in the same person. See Davis, the Psalms, page 173. The medical amulets used a variety of scriptures, but the Psalms were used more than any other. Their Psalm-based amulets were used to treat fertility, fear, plague, exhaustion, skin wounds, as well as problems with the heart, eyes, bones, sunstroke, epilepsy, or falling disease, other less medical uses include bringing peace upon Israel, concern about one's soul or life, and engendering hope. See uh, Davis for an extensive list of the psalms used on amulets, the lines used, and what ailment the text was aimed to treat. Jewish medical talismans were common in antiquity and are still used today, although it is significantly less common. See Roshner, he relates a story about how a five-year-old girl began treatment for leukemia in 1962. Her parents gave her a chemia in addition to her chemotherapy treatments, and she was cured of her cancer. He notes, her parents were still and still are convinced to this day that the amulet cured her of her acute leukemia. Not surprisingly, the use of amulets for health issues as well as other problems arose in Christianity as the religion spread and pagans were converted. Similar to the Jewish chemia, the Christians frequently turned to the Psalms for protection and health issues. In one example of a Christian amulet on papyrus dated to the 6th or 7th century, we see the use of Psalm 90. This psalm was the most common on Christian phylacteries. It ends with the lines, Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work 
appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Psalm 90, KGV, lines 15-17. I have to make a note here that I think it's unfortunate, as much as I this article by Dr. Crow just grabbed my attention and I thought I had to share it with everyone. Um, it's unfortunate I think he's using the King James Bible translation, as I've said many times before, if the King James Bible is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. I mean, this really points out the, the fact that it's, especially when it comes to the New Testament text, it's a, it's a betrayal of the original language used in it, which was not only a common Greek language, but a very just almost vulgar, um, you know. So to have this fancy language, I think, takes us out of um, the style and the mentality um, to that extent, even Eugene Peterson's uh, Message Bible is more accurate in its in its representation often of New Testamental texts than a lot of the other standard translations, which um, make the language seem more fancy and proper than it actually was. Of course, this is the Psalms, and the Psalms are a different thing altogether. Using the King James Bible is not a not not a horrible idea, but again, I think. Um, I think there's better translations to convey to the the listener. Maybe it's magical enough. Maybe it is. Maybe it's very magical. I don't know. We shall see. It's a matter of taste. And at the end of the day, if you're doing these sort of amulets, obviously, at every point in time, they prefer to use the original language, Hebrew or Greek or Latin most commonly in later years. In another example of a Christian amulet on wood from the 5th or 6th century, we find an amulet with a number of psalms written on it. In particular, it quotes Psalms 120, 28, 12, and 8, all asking the Lord for pure protection. However, in addition to using the Hebrew Scriptures, Christians also used portions of the Gospels and other New Testament texts on amulets. There were other texts used like this well-known prayer from the Middle Ages. In it, we find an invocation of the cross. Cross of Christ be with me. Cross of Christ is what I ever adore. Cross of Christ is true health. May the cross of Christ banish all evil. Cross of Christ be ever over me and before me and behind me, because the ancient enemy flees whenever he sees you. Flee from me, a servant of God, O devil, by the sign of the Holy Cross, behold the cross of the Lord. Be gone, you enemies, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What is important to note about this prayer is that it was believed by some to be brought from heaven by an angel to Charlemagne on the eve of battle. This would indicate that the texts that were presented on Christian amulets extended beyond simple scripture, but also included prayers and invocations of a purely Roman Catholic origin. This prayer had many uses. Quote, Pregnant women would ensure safe delivery and the survival of their children long enough to receive baptism by writing the prayer on a strip of parchment and placing it or wearing it round their bellies. Others used it for the treatment of epilepsy. Additionally, the Christian liturgy became a source of inspiration for amulets, on a 5th century amulet written on papyrus, we find the following written in Greek. The holy oil of gladness against every adverse power 
and for the grafting of thy good olive tree of the Catholic and Apostolic Church. Amen. What is important with this amulet of protection is that the formula on it was taken from the baptismal rite in 4th century Jerusalem. In particular, the phrase, the holy oil of gladness, appears in pre-immersion anointing formula in the later Syrian and Coptic baptismal liturgical texts. This is significant because it shows that the liturgy becomes a source for ideas that are extended into Christian amulets. Actually, a fun note is a big problem in the Middle Ages is people would sneak their, their, uh, the host out of their mouths after confession, after a communion. They would try and sneak it out of their mouth and carry it out of the church with them, and they'd break it up, put it in food for magical food, or they'd try and feed it to their cat if their cat was sick, or they'd sell it to someone to turn into an amulet. This was a, a very big problem for a period in the Middle Ages. Um, no wonder Luther had some issues. This is significant because it shows the liturgy became a source for ideas that are extended into Christian amulets. This distinction of origin, as well as the prayer noted before, is essential as here there, there has been significant debate whether Christian amulets were of pagan origin only, or if, after being adopted into practice, they evolved into their own unique system. It's a very interesting point. Was it simply an extraction from Christian practices, or did Christians really develop their own? Well... As we know from the hospital and school, Marsilio Ficino created, uh, definitely developed into their own, but we'll see if this essay gets there. While there still is no consensus, oh, many see continuity from the original pagan use of amulets to what quickly turned into a unique practice within Christendom. As Don Schemer writes in reference to amulets, by the end of the Middle Ages, Textual amulets were no longer a pagan survival, but rather a widespread practice that flourished at the heart of Christian society. Well, there we just sort of see another example of how Christianity really is a pagan religion from, <laughs> from beginning to end, as is Judaism. I mean, the, this, this, I don't understand why we still have these separations of monotheistic faiths from non-monotheistic faiths. Especially in the ancient times, it was more seen that they didn't believe in monotheism in the sense that only our God exists and your gods don't exist. They all believed in their monotheistic God in the sense that your gods exist, our God's just more powerful. That was the mentality of the ancient Near Eastern world. It wasn't one of whose gods are real, it was whose gods are most powerful. <laughs> Magic's prohibition, saving people from demons. This should be good. From the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, there was always the view that the world was populated by demons looking to corrupt man and damn his immortal soul for eternity. Magic, the term frequently used by the Church, designated a category of practices, beliefs, and ideas that were seen to directly associate a person with the devil. Previous pagan practices, beliefs, and behaviors associated with the pagan gods, if not incorporated within the church practices, were deemed superstitious and erroneous, and therefore in the category of magic. Of course, whichever ones fit are good, which ones don't fit are bad. It's, we see this all the time. One of the first prohibitions against the magical use of amulets came from Augustine in De Doctrina Christiana. Augustine condemns the use of medical amulets as superstition. Hmm. Was he ahead of his time or behind his time? He groups the amulets in with other pagan practices like idolatry. He calls them signs and states they are forbidden. 
quote, All the arrangements made by men to the making and worshipping of idols are superstitious, pertaining as they do either to worship of what is created or of some part of it as God, or to consultations and arrangements about signs and leagues with devils, such, for example, as are employed in the magical arts. In this class, place also all amulets and cures which the medical art condemns whether these consist in incantations or in marks which they call characters, or in hanging or tying on or even dancing in the fashion certain articles, not with reference to the conditions of the body, but to certain signs hidden or manifest. I think it's worth noting that um, this is from Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, Book 2, Chapter 20. Augustine had a lot of um, contentions with Jewish practices as well as pagan practices, and was contending as well as with the with um, Gnostic issues, so a lot of his ideas often came not from an idea of faith, but how can he preserve his group against another group, and that, that was an unfortunate part of his time, but he also had some solid theology behind why he believed these things were necessary. As a founding father of the church, Augustine's condemnation of amulets had long-lasting consequences. This is the problem when we don't see things hermeneutically, but take them dogmatically. His prohibition established the excluded category of magic that continues within the Catholic Church today. Whatever was seen as superstitious, pagan, or demonic was placed in this category. Magic was less of a description of particular behaviors, but instead it was a class of ideas and actions deemed unlawful by the Church and condemned. As Richard Kiekeheffer... That's a name. As Richard Kiekeheffer... Kiekeheffer... Notes, terms such as heretical and magical were often used broadly. Indeed, it is a common characteristic of pejorative terms that they lend themselves to loose employment. That's noted by Kiekeffer. The church used Augustine's prohibition in the category of magic to ban the use of amulets of any kind. The premise was that the use of amulets called upon the forces of demons to function. Mm. To save the people from themselves, they must... You not use these objects and create packs with demonic powers. These prohibitions, however, did not stop their use, as illustrated by the various amulets discussed earlier and the continuous reissuing of bands by popes, bishops, and ecumenical councils. Despite the prohibitions, amulets were prevalent at all times during the Church's history. Pope Galasius I, 492-496, prohibited phylacteria. The Council of Constantinople followed suit, in 692, as did the Council of Ratisbon in 742. Prohibitions were continually reissued over the centuries throughout Christendom. As Schemer muses, the proscriptions were endlessly repeated. It sometimes seems in hope of compliance. By the 13th century, shifts in church policy began to show that there was no way a complete prohibition of amulets could be maintained. Science was proposing natural reasons for occult phenomena instead of the assertion of demonic involvement. Mm. Amulets were part of this shift. Claims were made that amulets attracted natural powers from celestial bodies made by God. Thus, there were, was nothing demonic about these amulets. In his Summa Contra Gentiles, St. Thomas Aquinas addresses these claims and agrees with them to a degree. However, it does not seem necessary to deny altogether that some power may be present in the aforementioned objects, amulets, 
resulting from the power of celestial bodies, only it will be for those effects, of course, which any lower bodies are able to produce by the power of celestial bodies. Aquinas, Summa Contra Gentiles, page 93. This acknowledgement of the power of celestial bodies becomes important because in the future individuals would attempt to reconcile magic with natural causes as opposed to demonic. The source for this view of natural causes derives from the 9th century Arabic astrologer and alchemist Al-Kindi. In On the Stellar Rays he writes, For into every place every star pours rays, on account of which, because the diversity of the rays having been blended, as it were, into one, varies the contents of each place, since in each diverse place the tenor of the ray, which is derived from the harmony of all the stars, is diverse. It is therefore clear that all diverse places and all diverse times construct the diverse individuals in this world, which the celestial harmony, continually diversifying itself, produces through the rays projected into the world, and it is also declared by sense in some things and in others. Al-Kindi on the Stellar Rays, Chapter 2 Using the logic of celestial rays as natural phenomena from God, certain amulets became permissible in the eyes of the Church. Aquinas' admission of celestial influences created two kinds of amulets. The first were amulets that, by their natural composition, attracted celestial influences. These could be used because they required no intelligence to function. However, the second category contained amulets with symbols, signs, words, or images. These amulets required an intelligence to understand. They contained a nautic quality. This, thus, they did not attract the influence of celestial bodies, but instead of intelligent entities, humans and demons. Thus, the first category is permissible according to Aquinas, and the second is forbidden. Marsilio Ficino, here we go, a 15th century priest and philosopher attempted to unify various doctrines, knowledge, and ideas into a synthesis without conflicts. Using Aquinas' distinctions, he created two categories, amulets, which were permissible and only attracted celestial powers by their inherent qualities, and talismans, which were forbidden because they contained notic attributes. Copenhaver, Scholastic Philosophy, page 530. Ficino also creates an elaborate scheme in which he ranks objects' abilities to receive celestial rays, determines how well these objects work, if they are natural or demonic, and if they contain occult properties or not. See Copenhaver for a detailed analysis of Ficino's categorical enunciation. However convincing and useful Ficino's system is, it was only for the most literate and had no impact on the common use of amulets. Despite Ficino recognizing and agreeing with Aquinas that amulets with notic qualities, talismans by Ficino's designation, are demonic, the average person and priest continued to use amulets with words. Moreover, Ficino did not make a significant differentiation between words which were scripture, liturgy, or common within Christian practice, and words that were not. Both Aquinas and common people did. Thus, Ficino creates a set of categories that, while matching the theory of the Church Fathers, does not address the actual practices of the common people. In addition, Ficino's categories are mutually exclusive regarding amulets. Either the power in them is natural from celestial influence and lawful according to Aquinas, or supernatural, i.e. demonic and therefore unlawful. But there was another category that was 
in widespread use by Christians that he ignored in his theory, both lawful and supernatural. However, the supernatural power source was not demonic, but instead from God and his hierarchy of angels and saints. This category seems to have been missed because it is not based on theory, per se, but on the adaptation of practice from the liturgy and ritual of the Church. Moreover, because it was based on scriptural and acceptable practice, it was not considered magic. This is why Christian amulets are problematic for classification. At the highest levels of the Church, they were condemned. At the lowest levels, in the local parish and with the local clergy, the amulets were widespread and often created by the clergy as a service to their parishioners. Returning to the fact that Aquinas permitted some amulets, he did so, albeit with two distinctions. First, amulets could only have sacred words or symbols, meaning the sign of the cross. Second, amulets must not be seen as the source of power, but as a token or symbol of faith in God's power. Aquinas writes in the second part of Book 2, Part 2, Question 96, Article 4, of Summa Theologica. One should beware, lest besides the sacred words it contain something vain. For instance, certain written characters accept the sign of the cross, or if hope be placed in the manner of writing or fastening, or in any like vanity, having no connection with reverence for God, because this would be pronounced superstitious. Otherwise, however, it is lawful. These two caveats are important to note. They create the basis by which clergy could justifiably use church-sanctioned amulets. Indeed, these same exceptions were the basis by which the authors of the Malaeus Maleficarum allowed some amulets by stating, But on the other hand, the doctors answer as follows, especially S. Thomas, where he asks whether it is unlawful to hang sacred words around the neck. Their opinion is that, in all charms and writings so worn, there are two things to be avoided. First, in whatever is written, there must be nothing that savors of an invocation of devils, for then it is manifestly superstitious and unlawful, and must be judged as an apostasy from the faith, as has often been said before. Similarly, in accordance with the above seven conditions, it must not contain any unknown names. But if these two snares be avoided, it is lawful, both to place such charms on the lips of the sick, and for the sick to carry them with them. But the doctors condemn their use in one respect, that is, when a man pays greater attention to and has more reliance upon the mere signs of the written letters than upon their meaning. Note, that's from Kramer and Stranger, the Malaeus Maleficarum, page 182, part 2, question 2, chapter 6. And this is, of course, the famous witch's hammer, which was used by the Inquisition to determine whether someone was actually guilty of witchcraft or demon work or not. Also, a fun note, contrary to popular opinion, the Inquisition was very in large place put, in, put into power to prevent common people and villagers from executing easily those accused of witchcraft and, and demonism um, and to actually save a lot of people by applying some logic to the situation, albeit old church logic, to say that a lot of people, in fact, weren't practicing witchcraft but just doing early medicine or or being good Christians. So the Inquisition actually saved a lot of people who were being accused of witchcraft by their neighbors, uh, which was an easy way to get rid of someone you didn't like back then. So thank God for the Inquisition saving many, many people's lives. 
they also did some bad stuff. The issue that keeps arising is the categorization of magic or miracle. Aquinas and others permit certain amulets because they are not superstitious, but indications of faith that have results from the mercy of God, i.e. miracles. God's power was seen as infinite and his mercy was sought. Whenever there is a discussion of God alleviating suffering, it is always placed in a passive request. The Christian supplicates oneself asking for assistance, if it be God's will. This means that the amulet itself contains no power. The relief comes from the grace of God, who could be acting through the angels or saints. This distinction was a real concern, because as history showed, common people did not see the difference. They saw the amulets as containing power. This view is what the church had to continually work against. In addition, because the appeal was passive, the view that a person could command God to alleviate health issues or answer a request was unlawful. Man did not command God. Man accepted the fate God gave man. Transgressing these conditions moved one from a church-sanctioned position, a view of miracles, to a forbidden position, one of magic. Transgressing the first involves the invo evocation of demons. Transgressing the second was the sin of pride. In either case, the church deemed those positions as heretical. Magic or miracle, the diminishing differences? Over time, leading into the 15th and 16th centuries due to many factors including increased literacy, book publishing, and the emerging merchant or middle class, the creation of amulets changed from a primarily clergy-based function to one of professional or semi-professional cunning men and women. These cunning folk were individuals to whom people turned when they had issues and needed amulets, healing, etc. However, there was no doubt, though, that they provided magical services. By this time, there was less of a fear of the demonic nature of amulets, and while the church still forbade their creation and use under the categories of the past, its ability to enforce this prohibition diminished continuously. In the past, when the church had been the highest power, its prohibitions were expansive and relatively universal. But once the Protestant Reformation split Europe, there was a more fragmented attempt to prohibit magical activities, and this diminished its effectiveness. In addition, the state occasionally assumed oversight functions. For instance, in 1604, the English government passed this, the James Act, making it a criminal offense to consult cunning folk to find stolen items, know who their future spouse would be, or obtain other kinds of fortune-telling. It's fascinating. It's from Davies' Popular Magic. Nevertheless, while the law was technically on the books for 131 years, prosecution was variable and generally lax. This laxity was due mainly to the government being too busy with other concerns. Most cases were brought up by people who felt the cunning person did not deliver what they paid for. Well, they were scamming fortune tellers? Amazing. Hard to believe. These same laws were also, also were targeted as, at witches. In the mind of the people, there was a big difference between witches and cunning folk. As Davies notes regarding the people's attitudes, witches were evil, but cunning folk were useful. As stated before, originally the church tried to make the distinction between the amulet having intrinsic power and the resource of power being demons or God. This distinction was not generally held by the masses. The amulet was visible as was the result. 
any power from God or demons was not seen, and thus generally ignored. Thus imbued with the amulet with power, and also opened the ability for the cunning folk to work their trade. Frequently the cunning folk would be fully or semi-literate, and would consult a book to create the amulet. This gave the cunning person the appearance of knowledge and engagement in the problem of the client. Some cunning folk had impressive libraries of occult books. This too added authority. Oh, thank God that doesn't exist anymore. In addition, the ability to read or seem to read and the ability to write added to their power. Yeah, that's a fun fact of history is actually how many people used to pretend that they could read. Um, <laughs> yeah, check it out. As for the text of the amulets, it varied. As Davies notes, most written charms contained a strong religious con content. They included passages from the Bible, appeals to the Holy Trinity, Catholic exorcism, and lists of divine names in different languages. In essence, the cunning folk picked up where the clergy of the past left off. However, one difference is notable. While the amulets often had Christian religious symbols and words, the cunning folk were not restricted to these formulas. Also, because of the varying levels of literacy, often the spelling and characters were erroneous. They made a lot of mistakes because they didn't actually know how to read and write. Davies continues, Scriptural passages were often reproduced in Latin with the occasional smattering of Greek or Hebrew. Such passages were often badly spelt and grammatically poor, presumably from repeating, repeated copying. <laughs> We <laughs> just keep like a broken telephone. Not surprisingly, there was also considerable use of overtly magical words and phrases, spirit names, occult symbols, planetary signs, and astrological symbols. Thus, the use of amulets were no longer the domain of the clergy. Their use became commercialized, and instead of a demonstration of grace from God or the pact with the devil, they became commodity objects bought and sold as the occasion arose. What was earlier seen as a miracle from God or disparaged as demonic had now become a tool to address a problem or need. Still seen as magic, the category no longer had the exclusive pejorative designation. Cunning folk magic was simply pragmatic. The difficulties in the study of magic and miracle in the academy. The difficulties with the determination about amulet use and if it was illicit magic or legitimate Christian worship, also extends into the academy. In fact, the whole category of magic is problematic, just like the amulets sometimes placed in this category. This is evidenced in books like Valerie Flint's The Rise of Magic in Early Medieval Europe. In it, she describes the practices examined in this essay as magic, even the forms sanctioned by the Church Fathers. As she writes in her introduction, in choosing a single modern English word as a starting point, and one so loosely employed as this often is, one inevitably does some damage. I can only plead that magic is helpful as a sounding word for the exploration of the many ways in which a hopeful belief in preternatural control reached the Middle Ages. Flint, The Rise of Magic, page 5-6. to six. While Flint's loose employment of the term magic relating to ecclesiastical rites as well as the use of amulets, well, scholars like Richard Kiekefer take issue with her presuppositions. Critiquing Flint's use of magic and her application of it in her book, Kiekefer writes, Ultimately, she views the distinction between approved and disapproved ritual as a distinction without real difference. She insists repeatedly that many approved rituals were magical, even if churchmen said otherwise. 
but this ahistorical use of the word magic blurs the distinctions vitally important to those who made them. She argues that in spite of their own protestations, what they were defending and perpetrating was also a kind of magic. They tried to distinguish between magic and approved ritual, but their distinctions were not cogent. Clearly there are problems on both sides in the representations of magic. If we apply the polemical term magic to approved practices of the church, as Flint does, then we are dismissing the distinctions that were important for over a millennium. However, if we adopt those distinctions, then we are perpetuating the categories created by the church when it was the hegemony. This significantly removes the scholar from his or her neutral position. In addition to the difficulty with the use of the term magic, we also have scholastic biases about the magical use of amulets by the learned intellectuals and the common masses. Scholars in the field of the history of magic focus acutely on the work of intellectuals like Ficino, Agrippa, John Dee, and Pico della Mirandola. They ignore the esoteric practices of the folk people. Instead, they leave these people to the anthropologists. As Davies notes about the historians of magic, they have been drawn to the world of erudite high magicians, not only because the magicians were intellectual, literate, and left accounts of their experiments, but also because they embraced a coherent and sophisticated philosophy which modern historians can engage with and study within the context of early science. Cunning folk left little record of their thoughts and experiments, not necessarily because they lacked the intellect to comprehend occult philosophies, but rather because it just did not interest many of them. Indeed, historians of magic hardly mention the everyday practices of the magic they theorize about. Instead, they cite sources, debate theories, and seldom look at application beyond what the intellectuals note. Conversely, those who do study the folk people and their practices often lack the sophisticated background knowledge presented by the historians of magic. They may reference that folk practitioners had access to Agrippa and used the abracadabra triangle on amulets, but they lack the background knowledge to engage in this use and compare it to previous utilization. The end result is that there is a distinct bias by historians of magic against folk practices. There is an ignorance of high magic practice by the anthropologists, and there is an assumption of categories regarding magic that either distorts the past or inadvertently plays into the pejorative view of magic. This is a very interesting uh, academic distinction and point, a critique that Dr. Crow is mentioning here. Um, and you see this from the seg segregation of different departments within the academy anthropologists versus historians, you could say. Hmm. Certainly these issues are complex, and with something as polemic as church lawfulness, the negotiation must continually be made and contextualization must continually be sought. In spite of that, it seems as if this is not done most of the time, and preconceived notions and assumptions are very prevalent. Scholars are also constrained by time, and the vast amount of material that has emerged over the last two to three decades, no one can read or know at all. Still, there can be a better effort to understand these issues, challenges, biases, and assumptions, while continuing to negotiate the difficult category of magic and the various practices that may or may not fall into them, such as Christian amulets. Before I do Dr. Crow's conclusion, I think I was just at, uh, last year at the British Library listening to a lecture 
um, on some of the Akkadian tablets and some new translations done on sections of understanding the role of magic done from a fragment that was broken off and reattached by this guy who did his PhD dissertation on it, put out a book. It's very interesting. And you, when you look at the ancient Near Eastern and, and even earlier, uh, earliest writings of the way magic was played a role, it, it's often uh, informative to how we understand these distinctions as they develop throughout time, seeing their earliest distinctions. And the earliest distinction that we now have of magic was that witchcraft, that's not the actual word used, but the translation that we're giving it, is was something that was bad and illegal. So you could go to jail because witchcraft was something that you would do to influence other people. Uh, negatively, whereas magic was something that you did to transform yourself and become close to the gods. This is an early, early distinction that we that's very interesting when you see how it developed throughout Egyptian, Judaic, and then Christian eras, as well as, the, of course, the, the non-stop paganism that has been prevalent and never gone away. Conclusion Christian amulets play a very significant role in the history of the Christian Church. They were the site of important differences and the intersection of religion, science, and magic. Studying how they were handled by both the common people and the church elite opens up avenues of investigations that becomes obscured when only the theory of the church fathers is examined. By using both points of view, theory and practice, we can begin to see how the everyday negotiation of these differences and distinctions were made. The term magic was highly polemical and had deep resonance in the minds of all the church members, high and low. When historians examine these time periods, they need to keep in mind this complexity and the fact that one group of church members may have acted in a different way than others. There needs to be a more concerted effort towards contextualization and representation of the intricacy. It's very important. It's, we just, it's so easy to paint all these things with a broad brush and not realize the variety and the massive surplus of interpretations that would be extent in every time for all of these things. So you really have to look at the details of an individual person or, or group or period. Moreover, modern scholars need to work past their biases and engage in the work of historians and anthropologists who together can give a broader, more rounded picture of life during this time period. Magic polemics and the use of Christian amulets was fraught with difficulty. It is not surprising that even today there are issues examining their history. Nevertheless, we need to challenge our preconceived notions if we are ever going to get a better idea of how the problematic status of Christian amulets and magic in general manifested in the Middle Ages and afterward. So Dr. Crow is a professor and a curriculum designer at the University of Florida. He's won some awards for curriculum design. In fact, you can find him, of course, on online all over the place. And uh, this is Dr. John Crow's essay, and it was a fun read. Sometimes the language was a little uh, redundant, I found, but um, overall the research was good. And the, he points out key critical issues within both scholarship as well as our understanding and of the historical role these things played. I think a lot could be learned by comparing more of this uh, Christian stuff to seeing how it developed out of Hebraic tradition and ancient Near Eastern periods. Um, and of course, you know, 
that's uh, there's lots to be done for those who want to study uh, the history and academic esotericism and all that stuff. There's departments out there that are doing it, and you should definitely consider delving into some. There's just there's there's too much for us to. That's the point he makes. There's too much for us to all actually study. Um, it's not that there's a limited resource. There's so many old. I was overwhelmed when I started translating Aramaic manuscripts from the first and second century on magic, and just found out that there's just there's too many. There's there's not like only a few that we've translated many times. There's thousands that we've not even begun to do translations of. So there's a lot of stuff out there, and it's a great field for people to uh, spend their life studying. Have a good day. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk